0: Jesus has come as the one true king. There is a counterfeit who has attempted to usurp his throne. He has been exposed for the pretender that he is. The disordered order is being brought to an end. The insurrection is being put down. Long live the king. The coming of the king, um, the one true king. It's beautifully imaged as so many of our the best of our old tales. You just think in terms of the chronicles of Narnia. Aslan coming into Narnia, claiming it as his own. White witch, be gone! Or you think in terms of Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest. King Richard has come back to take his throne. Prince John, you're done! The king has come. Long live the king! Can I get an amen? Thank you. I'm going to sit down now. No. Um, So that's glorious news. It's fantastic news. The coming of the one true king. It does raise some questions, though. How does this kingdom work? Kings have kingdoms, you know. How is this kingdom can I say administered? How does it function? Are there laws? How do they work? How do they work? Well, let's explore that a little bit here together this morning. Jesus guides us in that and uh, we need to hear what he has to say. Uh, We are moving on in our series through the gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew 5. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to go there now with me. Turn or click, whatever it is you've got there in front of you. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 that's the first of the Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 5, this is in the context of the flow of the larger Sermon on the Mount. We've, over the last several weeks, been looking at the Beatitudes. We're now past that, moving into uh, the the Sermon proper, I guess you could say. It's taking... uh, So we're taking some time to to move through this. It's sort of like a a museum. I've I've said this to a few of you before. Um, You know, you can can go to the National Gallery of Art, right? And you can run through there in about 30 minutes if you want to and say, yes, I've been to the National Gallery of Art, but have you actually looked at anything? It takes time. It takes time if you're going to take it in. And so that's something of the approach that we're taking here with the, the Sermon on the Mount, not rushing through it Two to quickly. Matthew five verses seventeen through twenty is our text this morning. Matthew five verses seventeen through twenty. Hear now the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless—excuse me—until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for these songs that we have sung and the time in prayer already that we have had and that has been good and right and necessary and we uh, have had our our minds shaped and our hearts stirred already just a little bit, uh, certainly with that. And and now we ask that you would continue that here as we are opening your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to it. Uh, We ask that, that you truly would be our teacher, that you would help us to understand what is being said here and its implications for our lives. Uh, we need this oh so desperately more than we know, not just your help and the understanding, but all the more in then moving forward with that understanding. And so Jesus put there on that hillside, there with the other disciples as they were listening in the larger crowds as well. Uh, there that day. Put us there. Help us here. Amen. Grammar is a funny thing. Um, if you listen to just the, the subtlest changes, uh, there, there are oftentimes intentionality with those subtle changes in the grammar. And it can be worth picking up on because it gives you clues as to things that the author wants you to pick up on. Case in point, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount speaking in the third person, right? He begins with a a string of these eight sayings, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This third person that he's speaking in. Blessed are these individuals that he is speaking of. Then he shifts from that to the second person. You get down to um, verses 13 through 16. You are... See the second person now? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We were talking about that uh, last week. And now in our, in our text this morning, he shifts from the third to the second and now to the first person where he says, I say to you, verse 18, and then verse 20, I tell you, moving in, in, by, by doing this and shifting the, the, the tenses, he is raising the intensity. and and hearkening to his authority and his understanding of the authority that he has as he is speaking and delivering these words. Which I think then raises a question and certainly would have that first day there on that hillside as he was speaking these things to those people present. How can he say this? How can this rabbi from Galilee of all places say things Like that. Well, here's how. He was no ordinary rabbi. Not by a long shot. He is, as some have referred to Jesus, and rightly so, as the new Moses. The the better Moses. The fullness of all Moses was and represented and ultimately pointed towards. He is the lawgiver. The lawgiver. He is the king, and this king brings with him his law. He is This king is declaring the law is actually connected. It has something to do with his kingdom. The kingdom and the law, his commands are not to be just separated in this disjunction, but rather they are bound together. The king has declared that his commands, his law, is connected to the kingdom. We need to embrace that if we're to follow this king. We need to embrace that if we're going to follow this king. Now, in order to do that, I I would say we need to delve into this passage a bit and and unpack three things. And you can see it there in your your outline there in front of you. And and those three things are this. the the Jesus' case that he is making for the law, that is... uh, how it is that he feels about it, and what it is that he has to say about it. Secondly, the cause for his case. Why does he come down in this position as he does? So, the 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 case that he's making for the law, the cause behind the case that he's making for the law, and then finally, thirdly, the consequences, and they're huge. The consequences that that then and the implications that that has for his followers. So. Uh, Here we go. We're going to look at these in in turn. First, Jesus' case that he makes for the law, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is making a clarification here. Uh, He is um, clearing up some misunderstandings Uh, some impressions that people have of him that are wrong. And he is going to speak some truth into that and clear up the confusion. Now, generally speaking, there was already a bit of confusion about him. Everyone who heard him recognized him as a rabbi. That was as a teacher, a wise sage of a teacher. That was not up for debate in any way at all, even if you really didn't get what he was saying. But there was, it was so troubling and so puzzling and for some even offensive. Because, well, he just wasn't like the normal rabbis. I mean, for starters, there was the company that he would keep. Some sketchy people. Described kind of in an umbrella fashion as tax collectors and sinners. Um, Prostitutes. Um, Traitors revolutionaries, you could even say terrorists, he was known to hang out with. Well, that's a little odd. On top of that, there was his seeming, I'll say seeming, don't have time to get into this right now, but his seeming disregard for the institution of the Sabbath, well, that's not going to work. And so, and now you get he's laid out in this, the beginning of this sermon where he's making clear, I am the, I am a king. I am the king, I'm the king that you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And he's speaking of, of what this kingdom is about. And in the Beatitudes, we talked about this over the last several weeks, that in the Beatitudes, these are the marks of what it looks like to follow him. And in not, in not one point in the course of those Beatitudes does he ever mention the law. Well, that's really weird. If you're one of his contemporaries, you could say. And so Jesus here at the start, as he's moving into the sermon itself, is in essence saying, don't think that by my saying that, that I mean this. Don't think by my not having mentioning the law, that I think there's no place for the law. Uh Uh-uh. That is not what I'm saying in any way whatsoever. And so he's clearing up this misunderstanding from the start, and in order to do that, what he's going to do is make clear his mission. This is why I have come, which is an interesting way to phrase it when you think about it. This is why I have come. not to. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, which is exactly what he means by that. I have not come to abolish it. I have not come to dismiss it. I have not come to do away with it. I have not come to set it aside. No, I have come to fulfill it. I have come as the fulfillment, the culmination of all of that i i I have not come to cancel the old testament you must understand i am in myself the culmination of everything you ever would have read about in the old testament in me can you imagine can you imagine someone saying that come back to that in in a few minutes but but what he's saying is is that all the prophecies and we Already in the short amount of time we've been in Matthew's Gospel in these last weeks, we've seen a bit of that already. How he is the fulfillment of some of these ancient prophecies. So in all of the prophecies, in all of the intricacies of the sacrificial system, in all the ceremonies that the Jewish people for centuries, there in the tabernacle and then with the temple, it's all pointing in some way towards them. In all the judicial laws that governed and held together that nation that was the incubator for His coming, to prepare and allow for His coming. And all of the grand events and all of the key figures in Israel's history, all of that is pointing to and preparing the way for Him. Can you imagine that being said of anyone? and there he is saying it of himself that is a really bold bold thing to say so what he's saying about the law the moral law god's moral commandments is this i've come to fulfill that too i am the my teaching is the culmination of all of that. I've come to show you what those commands are all about. Their depth and their breadth in my life and in what I'm gonna what I'm gonna show you and what I'm gonna tell you. I am the culmination of all of it. We're gonna see that over the coming weeks as he presses further and more deeply and helps us understand what the the law is really pointing towards, and what it all always was intended to to point towards. Jesus, Jesus, again, just putting it this way, Jesus' case for the law, what is it? Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Because it's all ultimately about him. All of it. There's a quote here in your quotes and notes, it's the second one. Not the William Cooper one, but the second one that comes from the introduction to Sally Lloyd-Jones' this, um, Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't doubt that many of you parents have that uh, in your house. If you don't, you should. And then if you're not a parent with children in your house, you should still have it. Because this book is fantastic. And this is, the, this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones, who by the way is not related to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I looked it up... Um, Uh, This is what she writes in the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible. Great words of wisdom. No, the Bible isn't a bunch of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true. In real life, it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. That's right. Absolutely right. Now think with me. How does that transform how you read the Bible? this is not this is not a, a, a loose assembly of isolated texts and and standalone incidents that you can just understand just piece pull that one aside and just understand it by itself it doesn't work like that they are all yoked together or if i can mix the metaphors is a common thread and it's moving a plot forward history forward towards the coming of the promised one, the deliverer, the snake killer, the serpent killer, the one promised there in the Garden of Eden who would come to crush him, crush the head of the serpent under his foot even as his, he himself would be struck, wounded, even as he gave death to the enemy. How do we read the Bible? Oh my goodness, it transforms it. We, help, we are able to see every, every, every small piece as part of a larger puzzle image, picture. But let me push this a little further. How does this change how we view Jesus? Not just the the Old Testament itself, but how we view Jesus Himself. Now think with me. There have been many great individuals over the course of human history. And it takes for some of them multi-volume works To even capture anything of of who they are and what they were like and their contributions and their life and all of that. And that's the case with Jesus too. But more. Because with Jesus, it takes more than just multi volumes. For Jesus, it takes centuries. It takes centuries of history. It takes centuries of those prophecies unfolding. It takes centuries of these ceremonies and sacrifices. It takes centuries of these events and individuals over the course of human history as recorded in the Old Testament. It takes all of that to even foreshadow Him. What a Savior. What a Savior. How do we see Him? So the law is connected to the kingdom. The law is connected to the kingdom. And if we're going to follow this king, we need to embrace that understanding. Well, that takes us to the second point. Jesus makes his case for the law. He's not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What's the cause behind the case? Why? Why have you come for this. Well, he tells us we're not left to guess versus I'm going to read verse 17 again, but now pushing to verse 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, he tells us this this is this is why He's given us his rationale, his reason, and in so doing, he also helps to answer two other questions we might not have even thought to ask, but are worth asking, and that is, one, how long and how far? How long and, and how far? Let me explain this. So, first, how long is this the state of things? How long does the law have this place in your view, Jesus? Well, he tells us, he speaks here of an abiding permanence to the law an abiding permanence to the law. He says that it is going to last. It is going to endure till the end, until the completion of his work, until the completion of his mission, his life, death, resurrection, ascension and return. The law is going to endure until the very very end and there in its place and vital essential place in our lives the law is in that sense going to endure for as long as the cosmos will last so does it have a place it would seem so but he pushes this even even further um and actually i should add this as a backdrop to that what is the law god's moral commands you know what what it really is it's an expression of it's a reflection of god's heart His character. He tells us to walk in these ways because that's who He is. That's what, you could put it this way in our vernacular, it's what He's about. And God doesn't change. And so His commands don't change. And so the law endures. And its place in our lives endures. So how long? How long? Jesus speaks of an abiding permanence to the law. But then you could push it further. You could ask, well, how far? How far does this Go. Well, it seems that with this, they're, they're, with this abiding permanence, well, there's an inclusiveness to the permanence. That's where these images, these interesting images that Jesus gives here of, of um, scribes and writing on scrolls, and he mentions an, an iota, and what on earth is that, and a, and a dot, I mean, what, what, what is that, a fashion thing? I mean, no, the iota is, was the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. And the dot is understood to be the slightest stroke of what we would say is a stylus. We could call it a pen. The slightest stroke that sets one letter off, distinguishing it from another. Like we would say, like a you know maybe an I and a J, right? Really close, but just one little mark, and you just change what the letter is. Well, that's what Jesus is referring to here: an iota and a dot, with the implication being that no part of God's commands, of his law, is to be ignored. None of it. None is going to pass until all is fulfilled. Jesus is putting before us, you understand, the highest, part, the highest possible view of the Old Testament. And then specifically, God's commands. God's moral law, his moral commands. He has the highest possible view of that. That's the cause behind the case. And that's why he speaks of it as he does, because he has this deep affinity and affection, I guess you could say, for it. Let me try and roll this out. Okay, so what does this look like? Uh, This past week in the Schwartz household was a very hard week. Uh, We had to put to sleep one of our beloved pets, this little cat that uh, my eldest daughter, Hannah, Grew up with it was just emotionally and physically exhausting, especially when I stayed up so late with the cat taking care of her, and, and then, then then all of that that comes with that. Okay, so over the course of those those days, um, I, I if, if I'm going to be tender-hearted and compassionate in any way at all, which I know is a reach, but if I'm going to be compassionate and tender-hearted and 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 kind towards the other people in my house who are also feeling the emotional exhaustion and and, and all that with the loss of little Cindy. I need to be patient, right? I need to be forbearing. I need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because I treasure these people. I love these people, and how I feel towards them ought to have some impact on how I treat them and respond to them. You see where I'm going with this? How we... How we view people, how the extent to which we treasure them and love them, ought to have some impact on how we view them, speak to them, and of them. And that's kind of what you see here with Jesus and the law. How He speaks of it is born out of how He feels of it. And we got a sense of it. Marcia read it just a little while ago from Psalm 1. This is Jesus singing over the law. You understand that? Jesus is the voice behind the Psalms, ultimately. Read just just the first two verses of Psalm 1. You want to know how Jesus feels about God's law? Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I would encourage you, if you want to you know, get yourself a a pumpkin spice latte and sit out on the porch this afternoon and read Psalm 119. You want to know how Jesus feels about God's law? There it is. Uh, Here's my question. Is that how we feel about it? Is that how, if you're a follower of His, if you're a disciple, if you're a citizen of His kingdom, is that how you feel about his commands? That they're a treasure and you, you love them? Now, how would you know whether or not you do? It might be worth asking and worth thinking about. How, what would be the marks of, of, of that? Well, obviously, I mean, this is a no-brainer. You'd be spending time reading it. Reading it and studying it and meditating upon it and finding people to discuss it with, and especially like a community group. Or can I just say marinating in it? And, and coming to the Lord again and again in prayer saying, oh Lord, please shape me by this. Shape me by this. I'm, I want to have a Psalm one heart towards your word as you do. Shape me in this way. But I think it would go further than that. It would certainly include that, but I think it would also include taking it seriously. So not just reading it, but and, and in that sense taking it. But I mean actually you know, what you're finding there. And what I mean by that is not taking away from it or adding to it. Not taking away from it. So we're we're delving into it, we're studying it, we're we're marinating in it, and we're finding some things in there that go against the grain. That we don't particularly like. You know, calls to i don't know honesty and repentance and forgiveness and confession and generosity and sexual purity and humility it doesn't mean you get to push those things to the side you have to hear them not take away and not adding to such as the pharisees and the tax the, excuse me the pharisees and the scribes were known to do add to add to, come up with our own rules, our own list of, of grand ideas of what it looks like to be really, really you know, faithful and spiritual. And so we add all these rules and listen, elevate them to the same stature of God's laws and His commands, and then, by the way, expect other people <clears throat> to abide by our standards. That's as wicked as taking it away from God's law, adding to it. There's not a, oh, which one's better? I, no, they're equally wrong and that's what it means to take it seriously to truly truly take it seriously again the law connected to the kingdom you embrace this to follow the king okay this lastly that then takes us to these consequences so jesus has laid out his case he's given us the cause for the case and now there are these consequences and we're not left to guess here because he gives us the therefore and if you know anything about You know, that old axiom of studying the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, you know, verses 17 and 18, uh, that's leading us then to the conclusion, verses 19 and 20. With all that in mind, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus is speaking here of consequences in two senses. First, a a consequence for, for, I'm going to put this in quotation marks, status within the kingdom. Um, uh, It was common in that day for for the Jewish people to, to make distinctions between the commandments. Uh, between you could say the light ones and the heavier ones. And and Jesus, in a sense, commends that in this word play between uh, lighter and uh heavier, um least and greater. It's basically the same words, but he, he's commending the distinction, but he's also saying that don't, don't be confused by by my being okay with the distinction. Don't confuse the light and the heavy and don't ignore the light and for the heavy or the heavy for the light, either. Uh, don't don't do that. In don't do that at all. Now that's the status within the kingdom he's calling for. If you know, in essence, he's kind of, I think, maybe speaking to just this, this selfish human desire that we all have for status and standing and all that. And in essence, he's kind of tweaking and saying, look, if, if you want status and standing, what that calls for is a, is a heartfelt Uh, obedience to all of god's commands that's where you'll have status and standing if that's what you're really after but then that takes you into this not just status within the kingdom but entrance into the kingdom and here's where he speaks of the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees the scribes who are they what what is he talking about here who who are you got to understand who the scribes and the pharisees are the scribes professional students and teachers of the law the experts the pharisees a jewish party uh, one of several at that time, um, that was, how shall I say, given deeply devoted to uh, the study of and adherence to the Old Testament law and all the traditions that had arisen around it over the course of the years. Understand that in those days, for Jesus's hearers, their perception of the scribes and the Pharisees are, these are the most righteous people we know. These are the most obedient. These are the most spiritual. These are the ones that God is most pleased with. And they're all about the externals and the checklists. And so this is absolutely shocking for Jesus to say, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. But you see, He's not calling us to beat them at their own game. Focusing in on checklists and externals. That's not what He's calling for here. He's going for the heart. He's going for the true, deep application of these commands. Again, Lord willing, we'll get into that in the weeks to come. Here as we move through Matthew 5. Jesus, again, has the highest possible view of God's laws and commands. And the consequence of that is he refuses to settle for checklists, because his regard for God's laws and commands is so high. He is insisting on it goes down into the depths of our motives and our hearts. He wants the motive behind the action. He wants the why behind the what. Um, He's insisting, put it this way, that we do the right thing the right way for the right reasons. That's Christian Ethics 101. The right thing the right way for the right reasons. Let me give you two examples. So, you're faithful to your spouse. Never cheated on them. Good. Why? No one better's come along. I mean, seriously, no better opportunities? Too scared about the, the, the cost and the consequences? Why? You're faithful. Why? Is it for love? You're trusted at work. Never stolen anything. Good! Good! I'm not commending that, or whatever, opposite. Why? Is it because, again, no opportunity has opened itself up? Is it because the, the, the checks and balances are such that you couldn't possibly get away with it? Is it? Would it be just too much trouble and too much of a hassle? Or is it love? Love of God and love of others. That's what he's after, the heart. The depth of our heart's affections. The law is connected to the kingdom. We've got to embrace That sort of understanding as we're listening to and following the king. In closing, let me, oddly enough, in closing, in the conclusion, I want to take you to the introduction. Not my introduction, but to the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount itself. Take a step back. The broader context of this whole teaching. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, they went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, the way Matthew, we talked about this weeks ago when we did the overview of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Matthew is clearly writing with some intentionality, calling attention to, intentionally calling attention to some things. For starters, Jesus goes up on the mountain just as Moses did to receive the Ten Commandments. He goes up not just on a mountain, but the mountain, a definite article used for an unnamed hill. He goes up on the mountain, and he sits down and opens his mouth. Very, very, You get the sense of drama. There's a weightiness to what's occurring here. And all of this surely would have rung some bells for Jesus' first century Jewish hearers who would immediately have been thinking, where have I heard this before? Moses, the lawgiver, Who, by the way, and I know how we usually think of Moses, like Charlton Heston and Christian Bale. That's the other guy, yeah. Not so much, Charlton Heston, but anyway. So we think of, of, of Moses and law, Moses and law, but that's not really completely how the first century Jew thought of Moses. It was part of that. But they also thought of Moses this way. Their Savior, their Deliverer, their redeemer the human instrumentality through whom the lord worked in the exodus in and bringing them to the promised land delivering them from bondage there in egypt he was their redeemer he was their deliverer he is their savior just as jesus is described in matthew 121 which some say is the key text for the whole gospel of matthew As the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now you see what's going on here is Jesus is this greater Moses, the greater deliverer, the greater redeemer, the greater savior. It's a greater deliverance, but it's the same response. And by that what I mean is is this. He gives these commands not, not that we might then earn our I earn His love for us, but rather in response to His love for us, just as it was with the Ten Commandments. He does not give us these commands and these statutes and these laws as we'll press on to in Matthew 5, that we might be able to secure our standing and place before God, but rather because we already know our standing and status is secure with God. And this gives us a path to walk that out. That's why he has given us these commands. The king is declaring this law. My law is connected to the coming of my kingdom. Please do not, if I can put please in his lips, which probably would be inappropriate. Do not think that the law has ceased or can be separated. Do not think, do not think for yourself that you can discount or dismiss it, but rather it is bound and connected to why I have come. We need to embrace this as we follow this king. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us to love your law as you do. Help us to hear what you're saying about how long it endures and how far it goes, how far it reaches. Help us to keep in mind from whom it comes and for the purpose that it has been given, our flourishing covering all of life, such breadth, pressing into the, our, our, our thoughts and motives, the deepest part of our hearts, such not just breadth but depth. You have lived this out. All these commands that you give, you have lived them out for us on our behalf when we couldn't. And died in our place because we couldn't, bearing the punishment that we deserve to carry we ask that You would now help us to walk in Your ways and to delight in doing so. We call, for those of us in this room who call ourselves Your followers, may we be that. And may it begin with a delight in Your law. In Your name we pray. Amen.